We're returning back to Abraham. If you would please turn to Genesis. And so my, my stated plan, I think I said last time, was to go through the life of Abraham and then basically go look at a, the, the New Testament theology of Abraham. I'm going to change that somewhat. We're actually going to, um, at least at a high level, hit all of Genesis. And then my goal is to go to the New Testament, to basically go from a, what, what is a New Testament theology of Genesis? How do they read the whole? Uh, some characters are more important than others in the New Testament. Abraham is the most important by far, I think. Isaac shows up, uh, but he is not quite as important as Abraham. And if I recall correctly, he's not even as important as Jacob slash Israel. But we'll see how the New Testament uses the uses Genesis and understands it and builds its its theology. And it's it's a lot of the New Testament theology is really, is is pulled out of this book. And so you might recall from last time uh, the general sequence was Abram. Lot and his father's name was Abram's father's name. Anybody remember that? Terah. So they left Chaldea, Ur, went to Haran, and then they came down here. Right. And so we've got the narrative of Abraham coming essentially through the land of Israel down into Egypt. We have the run-in with uh, the fact that er- that Sarai is beautiful. And uh, that is one way that Abram got a lot of his wealth. Then we come back up here. We have a conflict because of the wealth. We have a conflict between Lot's people and Abram's people because it's a little hard for them to, you know, physically stay in the same area because of flocks. And so they split. And we would recall that uh, Lot, generally speaking, went down to the Dead Sea on the eastern side or in the Jordan Valley. That's, that's where Lot went. And while and the, and the way that the, the text describes this is Lot leaves and Abram's still standing there, able to see all the stuff that they just had looked at to decide where to go. And God says to Abram, look around you, I'm giving you all these things. And this would also include all the land of Lot. Um, or at least I'm giving you and your descendants all of these things. Abraham at this at this point is not big enough actually to occupy the entire land. He's he's he is wealthy and he has a lot of stuff, but he has uh, a few hundred trained men. So it's it's not like he's you know 40 50,000 people and could actually even occupy the land. That would be something that would happen later in Israel Israeli history to Ultimately, his descendants. That would be their role because, as he promised to Abram, uh, you're going to have many descendants. Can you count the dust of the earth? Well, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Can you count the stars in the sky? Well, your descendants will be like that. So that's where we were. And uh, so Lot went down here. And then there was a war. We talked about that, which is why we put these place names. Uh, There were various kings up here. And they were in general control of not only this area, but also down in here. And so there was a war, essentially a rebellion of kings down here against kings up here. There was a war. The kings up here came down, fought one, captured Lot. And on their way back, Abram took his few hundred men with some help of some others and went and rescued Lot and essentially defeated those kings up here, okay, somewhere somewhere north of the land of Israel. So they were going back, and Abram caught up, and they had a war, and Lot was freed. All right. This is also where, if we go ahead and anchor ourselves in the text, if we looked to, for example, uh, chapter 14, this is where Abram rescues Lot. This is that event. And then you see at the last half the, the, the meeting between Abram and Melchizedek which will, will be of, an, of very significant importance whenever we get to the New Testament. Now, in terms of the other things that we saw, um, you know, you, you've got essentially the journeys of Abraham starting, excuse me, Abram, starting in chapter 11 uh, with the genealogy there that connects essentially pre-patriarchal history to patriarchal history. 
All right. Uh, but you've got the actual, the first giving of the actual covenant in Genesis 12. And then uh, we looked at Genesis chapter 15, where we saw another giving of the covenant. And this is essentially, um, well, we went through it, where God unilaterally gives a covenant. So many covenants are two-way, where you do this, I'll do this, you do that, I'll do that. This is not one of those. This is a, I'm just going to do this for you, between God and Abram. God says, I will multiply you greatly. All right. So that's Genesis chapter 15. That is where we stopped last time. And so today my goal is to uh, go through rather quickly through the rest of Abraham's life. And then I want to uh, have one theological discussion that really covers this and has some significance in other areas. And so if we look at um, Genesis chapter 16, we can see Sarai and Hagar. Okay, um, we, we aren't going to read all of these texts right now, though we are going to come back to, to this one very soon, this, uh, later this morning. Um, somebody tell me, what happened? What's the general gist of the Sarai Hagar story, at least right here. Anybody, anybody recall? Sarah yeah. couldn't have a kid. She wanted a kid, so she gave Hagar to Abram mm-hmm. to enter into. Hagar had a kid, and then Sarah stole it. Sarah did not steal it. Uh, that last part is, is incorrect. Okay. But essentially, the first part is correct. Um, Sarah Sarai was well aware of, of how physical bodies worked, and she was like, I'm too old, I can't have a baby, I will give you my servant. And she will essentially be, um, what, what's, surrogate mother, that's the word I was trying, I was struggling with. He, he, this will be surrogate mother for this child, that would be the heir, alright, and, and sorry I was wrong, alright, this would, and this would not be the heir, but Hagar conceives, and she has a child, his name is Ishmael. Right. And so um, this child, what does God say about this child? What's the general gist? Right. He's going to be he's going to be a wild man. All right. Uh, Is he going to uh, is it going to be a big deal? Yes. God promises that he also will have many descendants. And so but but he is yet not. The child, because the the ultimate chosen child must actually come from Sarai. So that's that's chapter 16, and we will come back to uh, the latter part of that in just a little bit. Chapter 17, I've got in my ESV, Abraham and the Covenant Circumcision is the subtitle there. And so we have a number of times God coming back to Abram. And uh, essentially re-promising and re-establishing and setting up new things. And so it's, this is not just a, I promise once, it is a, God is consistently coming back to Abraham to do things. And here in chapter 17 is when God comes to Abraham and basically says, I am God Almighty, this is verse 1, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. So I can finally stop correcting myself and calling him Abram. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham means father of a multitude. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And we, of course, know that did happen. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So this is very much a, in many ways, a repetition. What gets added here, and the fact that this gets added chapters after the other things, is going to be very important in the New Testament. But what gets added here is circumcision. God commands Abraham to circumcise everyone in his family. And this includes extended family. For them, family would also include any slaves that you would have. I mean, they wouldn't be like your children, but they would be within your family household. And so all males 
in Abraham's entourage needed to be sacrificed. All right, excuse me, sacrificed. <laughs> that's not true. That would only be one of them. No, uh, uh, circumcised. Let's we'll start with with an S sound, right? All males would have to be would be, have to be circumcised, and they in fact were at that point, right? And so you've got in uh, verse fifteen, all right, you got a promise that Isaac will be born, all right. And God said to Abraham in verse 15, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, which I think both mean, I looked it up, both, both mean the same thing. They both mean princess. I will bless her, and I will give you a son by her. Okay? Now, Ishmael would still be blessed. And this, like if you go down to verse 20, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall be father. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Okay? Yeah. I think uh, we read through this really quickly. It's hard to, or it's easy to not appreciate what a great man Abram is. Mm -hmm. But we know he had at least 300 servants that were trained, and there's more. And this is the advent of circumcision. And he not only says, okay, God, I'll do this thing, which, like, what? But he convinces all every other male, I'm really we're doing this. Mm -hmm. God, and we're going to, I mean, it's. It's, I don't know, it's really easy to just, yeah, 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 you're under the next chapter. This big deal. I mean, yeah, it is a big deal. And I don't know how this plays in, but it's a factor in the text. It's an interesting point, even though you might think it's a strange discussion. Um, how do I say this? Abraham is circumcised at this point. There's going to be need, there's going to be a need for a time of healing, right? Notice that the promise is Sarah is not going to have a child in nine months. Sarah is going to have a child this a year later, right? So he's circumcised. He's going to need time for healing, and so then Sarah would have a child. So interesting factoid. I just thought about the timing, and I'm like, okay, all right. I guess that does kind of make some sense. Okay, so uh, chapter 17 and chapter 18. We have a, well, really, in 18, we have a very interesting story. And this is another one that we're going to definitely talk about here in just a few minutes um, at greater length. Uh, you've got three men come to Abraham, right? Uh, and we know something, essentially, we know something about one of these pretty quickly, that one of those, man, one of those men is God himself, who comes and visits Abraham, which is pretty remarkable, but that's actually going to be our, our major our topic of uh, theology here in just a minute. God himself visits with two others, and after a while, the two others break off. But God, all right, Yahweh, stays with Abraham and continues to have a discussion with Abraham. And you might recall the gist of basically Yahweh can't, comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to judge all right, I've heard, actually it's not what quite says. I've heard that Sodom and Gomorrah are extremely sinful. And so we're going to check it out. And if the reports are true, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Abraham knows Lot is in a general vicinity, right? We, that just happened. So Abraham then intercedes with God and says, okay, well... What if there's 50 righteous people? Will you destroy those cities? And Yahweh says, no. If there are 50 righteous people, I will not destroy those cities. And then, how about 40? All right, and then basically works, him, works his way down. And God says, no, I will not destroy those cities if essentially there are righteous people in them. Which leads us ultimately to chapter 19. Because in chapter 19 which I have here as the subheading, it says, God rescues Lot. Those two men that were with Yahweh arrive in the cities. All right? They arrive there where, um, well, they came to specifically to Sodom. And Lot was there at Sodom. And so they come there, and there's the incident of these two that we know are, are 
angelic creatures. These are not normal people. All right, these are angelic creatures that God sends. That they, but they appear from from all respects, at least, to be just really handsome guys. All right, because what happens is those in Sodom look at these handsome fellows. Well, back up just a little bit. Lot's at the gate when the men walk up. And so Lot takes them to his house. But they are seen by the Sodomites. And the Sodomites say, we want you to bring out these men so that we can have sex with these men. All right, so this is the men of Sodom. And this would be why, whenever we call a male homosexuality sodomy, this is ultimately where it comes from. It's the Sodomites wanting to have sex with what they think are men but are actually not men at this point. And we know they're not men, all right, because what happens? The, the Sodomites are trying to forcibly basically get, get these men out of Lot's house. And so what the angels do is, what, what do they do that's miraculous? They struck everybody blind. All right, they struck everybody blind and said, okay, Lot... Grab your sons-in-laws, grab your daughters-in-law, excuse me, grab your daughters, grab your wife, and let's go. All right? And this goes back to that discussion between Abraham and Yahweh. All right? Because Yahweh is going to keep his promise with Abraham and say, I'm not going to destroy these cities while there's a righteous person in it. They, he's going to take the righteous person out, and then he will destroy the cities. And so the angels perform that function for, for God. Now, of that list I just mentioned, who doesn't leave? What's that? What's that? Wife leaves, but she turns into a pillar of salt because they're not supposed to look back. Who doesn't leave? Two sons-in-laws. They don't, they don't believe this, and so they stay, which sets us up for a story that's going to happen in just a minute. And so the sons-in-laws are wicked, are wicked people from Sodom, and so they're like, no. And so they stay, and they are ultimately going to get destroyed. And so that happens in verse 23, is when that starts. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Now we talked about Zoar. Zoar, as we discussed, was actually down here. You recall that? Zoar means small. And this is actually one of those signs... Uh, if you read through this text, one of the signs that you can see that much of Genesis was written with later history and naming in mind, because it's in this passage that Zoar is called Zoar. And it's called Zoar because it's small. Yet, it's been called Zoar for several chapters. And so this is just, you know, so you know what we're talking about, even though it hadn't been called Zoar yet. When Lot was looking out over the valley, he looked all the way down to where Zoar would ultimately be. And so at that point, God destroys Sodom. Fire, brimstone is essentially the judgment. And, and essentially the cities are, are destroyed. When you get to verse 30, you see as a part of the story why uh, we know for sure the sons-in-laws didn't go. At least one reason why. Because ultimately, Lot and his daughters go up to Zoar, and they end up living in a cave. And then you have the creation of the... Uh, which two peoples? Do you know? Moab. Ammon and Moab. The Moabites and the Ammonites. And so these are the two daughters of, of Lot. Right? They, they no longer have husbands or future husbands. They got left in Sodom and were ultimately destroyed as a part of it. So they get drunk. The eldest gets um, Lot drunk. All right, gets impregnated by Lot. Then the next night, the younger gets Lot drunk and is impregnated by Lot. And that's where you get Moab and Ammon. And so there's that story. There's a lot in Genesis, there's a lot of stories about origins. Where do certain people come from? All right, and this is the origin story for the Moabites and the Ammonites. They are related to Abraham and therefore his his. His offspring, right? They're related because they're ultimately through through Lot. But not a part of the promise because they, these are not children of Abraham himself. Chapter 20, we have another incident where beautiful Sarah all right, is, is, uh, is desired by a powerful person. And Abraham once again says, she's my sister. 
I'll let you read through that. We won't go into it in detail. Chapter 21, Isaac himself is born, right? And when you get to verse 8, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, on account of Ishmael. He liked Ishmael, I think is the idea there. But God, maybe not Hagar, but he liked Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And so you have then at that point, Hagar and Ishmael leaving the scene for a bit. Yes, sir. This is a second example where the cultural practice of the firstborn is in conflict with God's purpose. That's right. Cain, Cain and Abel. Here it is Isaac and Ishmael. You're right. And Jacob and Esau. Mm-hmm. And David wasn't the firstborn. That's right. He was the last, right? So this tradition of making the firstborn the first heir is. <clears throat> Right. It's often, it's often overturned. And I wonder how much it fits in with the whole general notion you get in the New Testament, where God intentionally chooses the weakest over the strongest. Right. So, but that's a good, good point at this point, that you, you definitely have Cain and Abel, you definitely have Ishmael as the older son, but not to be as blessed as much as the younger, for sure. Yep. Um, another thing, that was the weakest part. I just... Like, what was the names of, it was Jacob and Esau, and then Ishmael and Isaac? Ishmael and Isaac, yeah. Wasn't Ishmael painted as more athletic than Isaac? And then I know Jacob was too, because Isaac was kind of the crafty. Ishmael was painted as more more wild, uncontrolled. Oh, okay. Um, well, at least for Jacob and Esau. Esau was the other Those are the names, right? I'm mixing all the names up. Yeah. The, the stronger one would be considered more of the important, because he's yeah. mighty, he can fend for himself. Mm-hmm. But God flipped it on on everybody's head, and Jacob became, even though he was a small guy, the important one. Yeah, yeah. He was the hunter. He was the yeah. Esau was right. He was the, he was the active, manly man. Jacob was more of the mama's boy. Jacob was definitely more yeah. of the mama's boy. Yeah. Which one are you? <laughs> oh, not, you know. not important. Not important. I'm a firstborn, so. <laughs> Um, verse uh, chapter 22 you got the sacrifice of Isaac which is hugely important right uh, somebody tell me what's, what's the, the gist of the story of the sacrifice of Isaac it was a oh well the gist of the story as we know it or they knew it as they knew it um, as a test of Abraham's faith right and so God told Abram or excuse me Abraham see <laughs> All messed up at this point. God told Abraham, take your son, the one I just promised that would have a lot of descendants, and then go sacrifice him to me. Right? And this was a test of Abraham's faith. Exactly right. Abraham was going to do it. God stopped him. Alright? And it really was, this was a test of Abraham. Isaac lives through the thing, and in fact, alright, and in fact, Isaac would have not a lot of children directly, as we know, he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And then verse 20, excuse me, chapter 23, you've got Sarah's death and burial. Uh, Abraham is not dead yet, all right? but Sarah dies at this point. So that's, that's the primary part of the Abrahamic narrative. Uh, after this point, it's really Isaac for a little bit. All right? Abraham's death is not until chapter 25. 
But Isaac is the main character essentially until... Yeah, Isaac's the main character essentially until we get to Jacob. Okay, with all that in mind, I want to discuss one, uh, one issue of theology. All right, And that is when God appears to Abram slash Abraham. Okay? How does he do it? And I want to think about some of these passages. All right? And see what we can glean from it. How does he choose to appear to Abram slash Abraham? Okay? Anybody? Let's talk about some passages. What are some events where God appeared to Abraham? Represented by angels. Okay, which situation specifically? Uh, when Abraham bargains with him over Sodom. Okay. Now let's go look at that. Because that's, that's a very important one. All right. So go back to Genesis. It's going to be chapter 17-ish. All right, 18. Okay. Let's read this. And Yahweh, all right, and know that this is not a generic, and this is important to notice here. This is not Elohim, which is a generic word for spiritual being, which often points to the one true God, the Most High God, but doesn't necessarily have to. That's not this here. This is God's name itself, okay? And Yahweh appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, okay? Physical or not? All right. We don't know yet, but it's certainly physical. As, all right, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. So it's not just one humanoid. All right, it is Yahweh Himself. All right, with two others that we know ultimately must be angels. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought. And immediately at that point, you know it's a physical appearance. right? Or at least it certainly looks like, as far as Abraham is concerned, it's a physical appearance. right? Now, we by default, and rightly so, when we think of God, we think of spirit. right? We think of God, God is a spirit. Abraham's default may not be that. Abraham's default, and this is something I want us to think through, Abraham's default actually might not be vision. Abraham's default might be physical. So I'm going to ask the question, how many times did God physically, not a vision, physically talk to Abraham. So let's, let's go back to that in a second. So at this point, we know. And then, you know, what, what's the story? I mean, Abraham's like, bring water. Go kill a cow, right? Go kill a cow. We're going we're gonna to make a meal, all right? Now, shall we, shall we eat the meal? Do you remember the story? Look, at, look in the chapter, all right? Does God eat the meal? Verse 8, Then he took curds and milk, and the calf that he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under, under the tree while they ate. Okay. So God physically is there. All right? Now, theologically, looking back, we go, this is, it's very common in Christian theology. It's not weird for me to say this is a pre, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. All right, that God the Father does not take physical form, but Jesus pre-incarnate does take a physical form here. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. All right, so they're sitting. I think is the idea. They're sitting, probably reclining, all right, and eating, and he's standing there. Okay, so you have a physical appearance here. Now, seventeen. All right. 17 verse 1. Yahweh appeared to Abraham. Physical or not? 
unknown. All right. I think we default to when we see appeared, we we default to vision. All right. Sometimes it's really clear if it's a vision-like experience or not. All right. Like for example, chapter fifteen. So go to fifteen. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. So there, it's very clearly a vision-like experience. And that goes even to the end, right? Because in the end, he falls into a deep sleep. And the vision of the firebrand and the pot going between... right? You've, I mean, the, the, the animals that were killed were physical animals. But the vision, all right, he sees in his, in his mind, all right... Uh, this this event. So this seems to be that. Now here's here's a uh, here's a possibly a trick question. Where does God first appear to Abram? Okay, what verse? This is definitely a trick question. Uh, for, uh, chapter 12, looks like. Okay. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, where are they at this point? Isn't Abram in, was it Ur? Abram at this point is in Haran. Haran. And how do we know that? Uh, the very last verse of chapter 11. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And so they were on their way. This is a trick question because, please turn to Acts chapter 7. Yeah, this totally did not register to me uh, whenever we went through this recently, as Bill was preaching. Totally did not register to me. Acts chapter 7. Do you see it? It's right there at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. So according to Acts, you've you've got here an event that didn't happen in the record of Genesis. All right? Um, God appeared to Abram, or as he would call him, Abraham, right? In while he was in Ur. Now, next one. Let's talk about Sarah and Hagar. Because Abraham is perhaps not the only one that God appeared physically to. So if you turn to Genesis chapter 16. Verse 7. Read it and tell me what you think. Is this, who is this? It's debatable because in, in, in the other chapter it says, I am the Lord. Mm-hmm. And here it says, the angel, angel of, the of the Lord. Yeah. But it's not definitive. It's, it's not definitive. Now, is this physical? And if so, how do we know? And if not, how do we know? I, I think it implies physicality because the what's the imagery here? The angel went looking, all right, and the angel found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, "I mean, it doesn't say for sure there. He was walking around looking." under things, but that seems to be the the image, and it's sort of like um, remember when uh, the the imagery is extremely physical in the garden, remember when when God goes and looks for Adam and Eve after they had sinned, alright what was he doing? he was was walking, alright walking, it's very physical here I think that's, I think this is physical here, though it's hard to say for sure 
if it is. But here it is the angel of the Lord. And one of the things you'll see, which is interesting from a theological perspective, all right, looking back at things, is often you will see the angel of the Lord, and then it'll just talk about the Lord himself, all right? And there seems to be some sort of overlap, or at least the, the barriers between the two are kind of fuzzy, all right? Which kind of makes sense. If it is just an angel, still, it's an angel sent by God, all right? But it's also extremely common, all right, for people to look at this kind of thing and say, who is this? And to answer with, perhaps this is, in fact, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Now, let's go to the next Hagar story, if we would. Chapter 21. All right, so we're going to so read the story. All right, we're going to think about what's going on here. Who is it, and is it physical or not? What is going on? So this would be after, this would be essentially Hagar leaving. All right? Uh, we already read part of this. And so Abraham, you know, gave bread, skin of water, gave it to Hagar, and she went and she wandered to the wilderness of Beersheba. Verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite to him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? What is this? Physical or not? Doesn't seem to be. Right? Called from heaven. Now, unless it's in the sky, if that's what we're talking about, because maybe it's, if it is physically auditory. But it's not the angel of the, of the Lord walking around finding, finding Hagar. This is clearly not that. This is the angel calling from heaven. So, would it be more of a vision or more of a just auditory hearing? Or do we not know? It doesn't have to be a vision. It couldn't be physically angel in the sky calling and she hears audibly. But it doesn't say. Um, we, by default, like, for example, even in that Acts chapter, when we read that where it says, and God appeared to Abram or Abraham in Ur, all right, it's our default to go, that's a vision. I think we need to look at the context and know. Here, you can see the context. It, at the very least, it's not the angel walking around. All right. Now turn back to the story of the individuals, all right, in chapter 18 when they came to visit Abram. Or was he Abraham? No, he was Abraham at this point. All right, he becomes Abraham in chapter 17, covenant of circumcision. So at what point, all right, or at what point do we know? That's the wrong way of saying this. We know from verse 1. At what point are we sure that Abraham knows who this is? Okay. Okay. And so the, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of, the, of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, this is not God's covenant name, just in case you're wondering. This just means master, great one. If you have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. All right, at this point, what could be, what's our scenarios? He recognizes exactly who this is and calls him Lord. Not necessarily by his name, but by his title. This could also be just hospitality. All right? People show up. It's, it's very common in the ancient world when people just show up. You're, you're going to be hospitable, hospitable to them. All right? And so therefore... I'm here to serve you as, as, since you're going to be my guest. 
Now, what's interesting here, though, is that it's, it's, is it implying in verse 2 that they just, poof, he lifted up his eyes and behold, three men were standing in front of him. All right. Is this a bang, a miraculous encounter at that point? And so therefore, Abraham at that point knows, okay, that's Yahweh. I'm going to call him Lord and tell him I am his servant. Or is it just hospitality? At the very least, right, um, through all of this, by the time you get to the end, let's just keep going. We do have a a little bit more time. And so he asks that, um, you know, water be brought out. You know, he says, "I, I found favor in your sight. Do not pass by your servant. All right. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. So he's looking at this person as a physical being, right? You need rest. You need to have your feet washed. All right. And you need food. All right. Which is, I think is very interesting. All right. What if, and remember, this is a long time ago. Abraham, Abram, Abraham, does not know what we know about God. What if it was actually the norm that God appeared to Abram and then later Abraham as a physical being? And so when we think of God as a physical being, we think that's an unusual event, an unusual event, except for Jesus himself. No, well, even that is an unusual event, right? We think of that as an unusual event. What if Abram's theology is very different than ours? Because he, and he just thinks, Yahweh is actually usually physical. Now, this is not because Abraham would think, for example, that he was weak, right? Because he does, in this passage, call him the judge of all the earth. So it's not like he looks on it, it's just, he's a guy and I will respect him. He clearly looks at him as, you're the creator of everything. You're the judge of all the earth. But maybe he's really, for the most part, just used to dealing with God as a friend physically. Because God, he's, his, he's God's friend. And God's his friend. And so when God deals with him, he deals with him on a, what is more like a normal human level. What if it's, it's ultimately hard to say, but there's a number of things, and here you go. Maybe Abraham just thought of God differently than we do, and maybe it's just progressive revelation that we just know more. Yeah. So, as you've mentioned, we seem to view God as more of a spiritual being instead of a physical one that reveals himself physically. Mm-hmm. We're ain't, we're, uh, let me finish my thought. Don't answer this. But were angels more often come physically to people like Mary or did they come more spiritually and then you heard their voices dang it sorry Um, it's a good question I don't remember which apostle says this but one of them says always be a good host and be hospitable Mm because unknowingly you may be entertaining angels. Mm-hmm. Can that kind of relate to this? It absolutely can. Yeah. Because why would you say that if they don't at the very least look like people when and, they want to? And could that knowledge from what the apostle said be kind of used to interpret that maybe they actually, God and the angels showed up more physical than we sometimes think of them as showing up? Yeah. Now, you do have very important places in the Old Testament where the uh, at least non-visibility aspect of it is very clear, right? Uh, like, for example, is it Elijah or Elisha? It's, it's Elijah, right? The incident where um, uh, there's, I believe, it, details, right? Servants with Elijah and servants worried Elijah's not, right? And Elijah's that you just don't see it. His eyes are opened and he sees the whole area is surrounded. That was right? Elisha. Elisha. By, by the, the angels of God. And so that's one of those cases where, okay, they're not, when we think of physically, visibly, they're not, 
at least visibly there. But they were certainly there. Um, it's just no one could see them unless God wanted them to. If you have that passage in mind, and yeah. you hear that the angel speaks to Hagar from heaven, it's mm-hmm. almost like I've used that text to try to make the point that we normally think of heaven as being up and distant and far, far away, mm-hmm. but that's just us. And, and definitely it can be, but also in the scripture, often the, the term heaven is immediate. Almost like another dimension, yeah. but right here, like it could overlap. Like it could be an angel right here. We're not invading each other's space because he's in heaven, which is God's space, and I'm in earth, man's mm-hmm. space. But those spaces can overlap and intersect. They're just different. And so that angel could speak out of heaven, out of another dimension, or whatever mm-hmm. that means. It'd be immediately in my ear. Um, it's wild. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, from, from a, I will say this from a, theolo- from a theological perspective, from a, you know, progressive revelation perspective. Are angels primarily physical or spiritual beings? The answer is clearly spiritual. They are primarily spiritual beings. They do sometimes show up physically. All right? Like to Mary would be a good example. Or the other passage you mentioned where you might be entertaining angels without being aware of it. Their primary mode, though, is spiritual. And if we recall previous discussion about God's heavenly counsel, he created a set of beings that were primarily spiritual. And he created another set of beings that were, that were physical. We are those sets of beings that are physical, meant to subdue the earth. Angels, that's not their job. All right? it, angels were not meant to, to, to be the primary gardeners of the earth. They have other responsibilities. And don't live primarily in this physical realm. But they can, as Yahweh himself can come physically and appear as pre-incarnate, you know, in, uh, pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament or an incarnate Christ in the New Testament. God himself can be physically here when he chooses to do so because God can do anything he wants. But that's not his normal mode for us, but maybe not for Abraham. Because like in this, in this passage in, in 18, there's no question who this is to Abram. Right? He sees who this is. And you can see it all the way through the discussion. Right? Because if it's just, if it is just someone he's being hospitable to, all right? And this is why you ultimately can't say it's just hospitality. Is by the time you get to the end of this discussion about Sodom and Gomorrah, he's talking to somebody who's the judge of all the earth. And you don't just call a random person judge of all the earth. You know who this is. And maybe he recognized him because, as Acts 7 said, God appeared to him in Ur. He knows what Yahweh looks like. And so he sees him and goes, that's the one I know. Because he recognizes him physically, which is very unusual for us to think about in those terms. But it seems to be, I think, how Genesis is portraying the relationship between uh, Abraham and, and God. Yes, Jim. God had to appear before Moses in a burning bush. But when God, Moses asked to see God's face, he couldn't show it to him or he'd die. So he fulfilled his purpose with Abraham by appearing with us before. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, he would, Abraham wouldn't have been able to interact with him. Yeah, there's, those are, so there's two instances there which we should bring in, but not today. Um, it'd be good to bring them in next week because we can talk about it related to Jacob. The burning bush incident and Mount Sinai incident. You can make us, you can make an, I'm going to make an argument that you've got a physical appearance on Mount Sinai. Because it's actually, it's, it's easy. How did the stones get made? A physical finger drew the law. Therefore, pre-incarnate Christ appeared on Mount Sinai and gave the law to Moses, right? Um, And of course, we've got another very famous incident where um, somebody is going to wrestle physically with God, 
Right? And that'll be later on in Genesis. Yeah? I remember hearing that being the, Michael, the archangel Michael, right? Mm-hmm. Not God. So do you think the... I mean, you're probably not going to answer me now because you're going to leave us all in suspense. Of course I will. <laughs> Why do you think it's the Mar- archangel Michael? I don't know. I've never looked into it. That's just what I've heard. So when you say wrestle with God, it was just... Oh, the, the wrestling with God specifically is, is not... At least not there, Michael. Oh, you don't mean the physical... No, I think both of those two are clearly physical events. Um, one, because it was a physical wrestling. And Jacob, this is Jacob, right? This is, this is Jacob, the Jacob event. Jacob is physically injured after it. And so it's clearly not a, I'm having a vision wrestling with God. It's, it's I'm having an actual physical wrestling match with the angel of the Lord. Um, he could not defeat the angel of the Lord, as it, as it turns out. Yeah, shocker. So anyway, that, that'll be more of our discussion next time. Um, so we'll bring in those other things, even though we won't go through all of Exodus. Uh, those are very um, they're interesting in terms of seeing how God physically physically interacted with his, with his friends in the patriarchal period. It's very fascinating. Yeah. Just to, everybody knows, probably knows this, but we have just this tremendous advantage because of the early church fathers who really sort of codified the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. So we all just assume that. And when we read back in the Old Testament, we read over these things and uh-huh, 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 we're on to the next chapter. Mm-hmm. But think how hard it was to think about this before you knew about yeah. God incarnate. Yeah. What's that relationship between the angel of the Lord and the Lord himself? How does that work? Metaphysically. Yeah. You are at a serious advantage here. Okay. Let's be dismissed at this point. Um, Jeannie, will you pray for us, please?